You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Craig Davidson is the author of literary novels that include Rust and Bone, The Saturday Night Ghost Club, and the short story collection Cascade. As Nick Cutter, he's the author of horror novels that include The Troop, The Deep, and Little Heaven. Andrew F. Sullivan is the author of The Marigold, his short story collection All We Want Is Everything, and his debut novel, Waste were both named Best Books of the Year by The Globe and Mail. Thank you for joining me. Your new book together is The Handyman Method, A Tale of Terror. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks so much, Rick. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. You know, um, when this novel is publicized as as a haunted house novel, and so immediately... I was a little bit, you know, I think, well, okay, I'll read a haunted house. Oh, I mean, I enjoyed, uh, you know, The Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson. It's an American classic. Um, Richard Matheson, a, a, you know, an incredible author, really influential on me. I was a little kid. I sat and read the, a short story of his collection, just clenched in terror behind the behind the couch that my parents had. Um he wrote a book called Hell House, also a famous haunted house novel. I wouldn't, having read this book, I would not call it a haunted house haunted house novel. I might say it was a Lovecraftian novel. What do you guys think? Well, I think that's that's an interesting, you know, take because I think you, I think I I can see how you would think that. Um, I'm not sure that Andrew and I set out to write a haunted house novel necessarily. And I think it does have trappings, at least from my, you know, from my writing, my input, Uh, you know, The Shining obviously was an influence. And as you said, Hell House and, um, well, you know, Hell House, I I love that book. And uh, it felt like he had read The Haunting of Hill House and said, I'm going to do it just a slightly bit different, more perverse, more horny ghosts. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I, I loved it, The Belasco House. Um, so, so, and, but also I'm, you know, a huge fan of Lovecraft and I think hugely influenced by him probably more so than, than Andrew is, although Andrew is super conversant with uh, him as well. So yeah, I can, I can totally, um, see where you're coming from, uh, even though it obviously takes place in a house and it certainly plays with some of the, um, conventions of haunted house stories that I've read and loved um, over my childhood and adulthood as well. I don't know about you, Andrew. What do you think about the Lovecraftian sort of backbone? I think there's like, I don't think so much like in the direct, you know, modern corny take of like, oh, there's another tentacle monster, which like Lovecraft has kind of got turned into is like this sort of, uh, you know, once they like make a Funko pop of the monster, it like sort of deflates the cosmicness of it. I think Rick, you'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, once it's a doll, it's sort of you know, unless the doll's haunted, and then wow, I'm back in. But yeah, until that happens, um, what I think is cool, or what 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 where I see that Rick coming from your reading is something that did come up with Craig and I a bit which was um sort of almost yeah like cosmic dirt like the fact that like rather than space and the outer world that there might be things beyond our comprehension and beyond our understanding that influence us and that are part of the world and like in the ground and it's not so much that you know oh like the expanse of space is just so unknowable it's like the earth itself is unknowable you know it's like pushing the lost earth to its very limit or the hollow earth to its very limit um and i do think there's elements of that with handyman not to spoil it for people but i do think it's about sort of like when you choose to build something right you're kind of cutting open the ground and interacting with a world that you're not really part of and so that was definitely an obsession of mine um, it comes up in Marigold as well, like Craig had kind of mentioned, like that my obsession when we finished these books, I was like, 
wow, I need to like really talk to a therapist about my thing with houses uh, <laughs> or buildings, you know, uh, not so much haunted, but like just an obsession with what they mean. So yeah, definitely. I can see that reading. It's a really cool reading. And I think it speaks to the fact that like, yeah, we didn't sit down and say, uh, oh, let's write a haunted house book. We sat down and we're like, let's write a book about a guy who goes crazy because of YouTube, basically. That's <laughs> yeah. Know. Go ahead, Brick. Yeah. Uh, well, well yeah. one thing I, I you do in this book early on, which is a famous, uh, Stephen King's famous for it, and it's kind of a, a hallmark of novels is the, the name checking early on because they are building in a place called Dunsany Estates. And I remember my time buying uh, Lord Dunsany books from the spinner racks at uh, Lucky Grocery Store as a kid. Ah, love those. You got us. Where did they go? You got us, Rick. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, we were just trying to have some fun, Rick. What are you? <laughs> this know, book was, great. You know what? This book was so much fun, I have to say. And one of the things, too... I loved how fast it moved because they move. We meet the Saban family, Rita, Milo, and Trent. They're moving into a brand new house, and it's a beautiful, huge house. It's the only house that's being built in this development. And my parents moved into a house early on in their development, in its development, too, in uh, the city of Brea. They had just decided to put out a house's out in the middle of nowhere, which now it's a big kind of a part of a sprawling suburb. So I'm well familiar with that kind of feeling of the creepiness, just of, you know, the empty house in the middle of all the emptiness. Um, so talk and it moves really, really fast. That's one of the things I really love about this. There, you guys do not waste time. Uh, so talk about the economy of this book, which is, I think, one of its huge strengths. You know, I, I think maybe some of what happened there is that it, it developed from a short story. Um, one question that Andrew and I uh, get asked, and maybe, maybe this is a downstream question, question of yours, Rick, is, you know, how did you two, you know, wackadoos bump into each other and decide to write a book together, essentially? And, um, you know, we've been friends for a great many years, probably a decade, and, um you know, we've admired each other's right. There's, there's a, there's a bigger story than this, but we've essentially admired each other's writing quite a bit. And I reached out to Andrew at one point and said, Hey, we should write a story together. And we assiduously we did, uh, which is more or less about the story that Andrew uh, had said. And it came from, from his sort of brain box, which was this guy who became overly influenced by a, sort of a, a dark entity infesting YouTube and sort of went nuts in this development out in the middle of nowhere. And over time and, uh, you know, more talking about it and a pandemic, we ended up nurturing it into a novella. And then it felt like it, it's, it's fighting weight was, you know, sort of as a, the short novel that it is, which I think, yeah, it's like 65, 65,000 words, which is, you know, it is a short novel. Um, so I think if we had stretched it much beyond that, it, it might've, you know, overswelled its banks more or less. So, so the partially the reason why it is as short as it is, it is because it started about 5,000 words. So it's a very, it's very fat from that point of view, but you know, uh, as a novel itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, Andrew, if you have anything about, you know, sort of the creative spirit behind it or how it kind of became what it became. Well, I think, you know, it's funny because you, when you tell people that you'll, then you will get people out there being like, well, you know, um, I thought there wasn't a lot there. And since it was based on a short story, it's not, you know, they, they just tried to add stuff. Or, but we really did. Like, the short story was the idea. And this was not just a, like, oh, we'll just stretch it. Like, oh, to no, make no. it a real world, right? Like, you know, with the characters, with with Milo, with Little Boy Blue, with the, the larger world, like, we wanted the intimacy of the family there. But to do that, is a lot of work and is a novel like it's not just oh we made a story longer like we really did have to rethink everything and really rewrite everything like i think the original doesn't really even exist in that like in the way you know this final draft does so for us i think part of it was we knew that this story wasn't gonna have a big cast my other stuff does some of craig's stuff does you get a lot of characters a lot of people and we like writing those books 
But when there's two of you on the project, you really need it to be like, all right, there's five characters. Let's remember that. Let's just do this. And we wanted to play on that like isolation and also that energy. I think the energy you were picking up on, Rick, was, all right, I wrote a thousand words. I flip it back to Craig. Craig's like, what is this? He writes a thousand words. I'm like, oh yeah, well, here's 2000 words of, and you almost kind of up the stakes for each other, right? You're like, okay, now a phone just came out of the ground. So good luck with that, Craig. And he was like, well, this guy's on the other end of the line. Like, so it's this sort of like, you know, I think we were having fun, especially I think when we really decided to crank it big, we were like, all right, let's like any idea you have, like throw it in. And then we whittled away the stuff that wasn't working. But it was that sense of, you know, working with your friend and being like, oh, wow, well, I'm going to do this next. And you're each kind of egging each other on. And I think that's where that energy comes from. It's like, all right, we got to keep it moving. We can't have like an aside here where we go back to his childhood and he reexamines a toy and remembers a memory. And then his father's voice is whispering in his ear. And the, and I mean, Craig and I are both writers who would have that. But we'd also have somebody, you know, getting attacked with a chainsaw in the next room. Like, I think having that balance there matters. And um, for that, yeah, the speed of it, Rick, and the energy, I really do think that came from the drafting process. Um, you know, it's the editing that really hurts you, but the drafting's fun when it's two of you because you're both yeah. kind of, you're excited, you know? So. Yeah, and it was probably, you know, if it ended up at 6,500, we probably wrote 90, you know, over oh, yeah. in, you know, we oh, did yeah. like, remember we, we were trying to crack a dream sequence that Trent was having that I don't think either of us could quite figure out. And so it kind of got jettisoned. And then there's one major plot point involving an incident at Trent's office, which initially was there and then it was cut. And then at some point in the editing process, we, I think we mutually decided, you know what, it does have utility. It does have value. So it came back in and got sort of enlarged on. So, you know, as you know, Rick, having spoken to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of authors over the course of, of your career, you know, each each novel is different, but often like the finished product, you know, if it's 100,000 words, that, that author is often written 200,000 words. And you've sort of culled and you've sort of seen what works and you, um, you know, have that rigorous process of, of pruning it down through the editing process. So, so yeah, it, it was, it was a fun process, but it was arduous at points, but in that way, it was no different than any other novel I've ever written. And I'm sure you the same, Andrew. Yeah. I think like for me, it was like, it did feel like it's in both our wheelhouses. Like it feels like a book I would write, but it also feels like one of the cutter books. And especially there's this, yeah, like there's a definitely, like I learned a lot from Craig doing this. Like I learned a lot about my own approach to horror and like really having to try and sort of justify to myself, like, why do I do certain things? Why do I depict scenes this way or that way, you know? And when you have a writing partner, that person, you you are sort of responsible to them to them you know and it's not quite maybe so adversarial as just like you're learning about yourself because you have to explain why you did this like the other guy is not in your head and you also can't have the resentment that you justifiably would have towards any editor which is a good you know you need that iron on iron kind of thing but with when it's two writers I do think you need like a little bit of you need to it helps you with self-awareness like, like, what kind of writer am I? What am, why am I doing this? Like, I can't just say, oh, it's my brain. I have to explain to this other dude, like, why I'm why I've chose made this choice, you know, and I think that makes you a better writer over time. You know, reading this, I have to say, I never thought that or for a second about that two different people were writing. It, it is so unified and so intense and so immersive that it just reads like, greased lightning and at the end you go oh i guess two people were autistic i i never even thought about that as i was reading it yeah it's it's interesting because we we really do have our own aesthetics and we have our own uh points of view and we have our own you know distinct influence some of which you know there's there's cross-pollination and there's overlap but um it, you see, it's it's interesting because it's like a thumbprint to me. I know what parts that Andrew has written, like because I, I I feel that they're so distinct. 
but 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 uh but that's just you know that's because i'm so close to it you know and i remember seeing those parts and being like oh like that's so uh creative in a way that i don't you know i don't operate on that level uh i couldn't have found those kind of um intuitive connections that i think andrew can find and and sort of the fabric of the world as he can tease it apart and see things um but but i but i but i agree i think the general early reports are like you cannot see the um the weld marks i guess but between one one person's side of the story and the other and we we did you know it we did sort of get into each other's work so there's a little bit of that but you know but not as not as much like there are some chapters that are absolutely all andrew there are some chapters that are absolutely all mine but um and we had an editor who was really helpful too and he, i'm sure he probably had some sort of subtle or overt influence and in sort of harmonizing everything uh but it's good it's good to see that really because you do, because i really do think it is in in every sort of meaningful way um both of our books you know yeah. the the character of trent he is such a great character because we we like him at first we like him but then he as he becomes corrupted by Han, uh, the other character in this book handyman hank a slash little boy blue Oh my God, what a character that is. So talk about the idea of, you know, bec becoming addicted to YouTube and, and, and you know, the, the perverse influence because it's not, in this novel, it's a horror novel. In reality, it's also a horror novel because uh, YouTube is not doing America any favors as far as I can tell. Right, Andrew, that's yours. Oh, yeah, that'll be. So, yeah, I guess I brought that idea to the table, but I knew it would have some resonance for Craig. Like he has young kids and, you know, it's hard to keep anybody away from screens. But I was just seeing even for myself, like you click on three different videos. And if you have autoplay on, like if you go away to like clean up the kitchen and come back, some crazy shit will be playing. And you're like, what? No, I don't care about this. Why am I? I don't think there's like frog lizards that are taking over Mexico. Why is this happening? Um, but you just, you know, you end up in these places and, and even, you know, a lot of these larger institutions, basically at this point, like to say corporation, it's almost underselling it like institutions of the world. They don't even necessarily understand how it's happening or they can't control it. They're like, well, the algorithm makes it. And it's like, okay, is this just like a modern demon that we've created? Like, have we just, summon something up out of the void we drew the lines slightly wrong and now it's here and we can't get rid of it and it's also you know in the same way that i think like a lot of demonic stories sort of work it's like it can't make you do something it can only suggest that you do something or lure you into doing something or offer you things I think we definitely did want there to be sort of a bit of a Faustian bargain there. You know, there are these sort of, you know, like and subscribe, like these like payments and homage and whatever else you can pay to an entity. Um, so those things were kind of going through my head. Like I sometimes get too, you know, caught up in the idea. And then Craig will make sure that the idea is like next brings a leak and we can kind of uh, make sure, you know, it's, it's viable uh, and not just me shooting shit. Um, so yeah, I think really like the video thing was something that I felt happening to me that I saw happening to other people. The kids' videos were nuts. Like five years ago, you'd have things like Spider-Man and Elsa go grocery shopping, whatever. And it's just basically digital action figures getting mashed together. It's just a swirling, you know, nothing. And so that to me is horror. Like that's exciting. That's like, you're making deals with forces you don't understand and i think rick that also goes back to your lovecraft thing right like where you're like look you made an offering of your attention to a screen and you know in return you've learned how to fix the hose on the outside of your house or something worse next time you know what is going to ask for next time is it going to ask you to start sending money is it going to like ask you to like take the roof off your house just for fun so there was that, you know, sense of play there. Um, and I think that's part of the book too, right? Is that it is, it's like the horror should still be unnerving. Like when it's unnerving, it should be fun. It should be on that like, 
oh, is he joking? Oh no, he's not joking. Like what? Like that sliding scale. And so we were playing with that a lot, which I do think you see online where you're like, oh, this is going great. And then it takes a hard turn. And so we were just hitting this, I think every day as, you know, ourselves getting pulled deeper and deeper into that algorithm. And so it is in a way sort of that, uh, like a possession story too, right? It is this, rather than the house, it's the person in the house who's becoming someone different. And they're sipping that poison every day, but it's through the eyes rather than through the mouth, you know? You know, the idea of algorithms as Lovecraftian entities is an idea whose time has come, my friends. Thank you very much. <laughs> very much so. We're, <laughs> we're spitballing on the fly here. That's yours, Andrew, though, since you yeah. came up with that. I, don't, well, I think it speaks to stuff we've talked about before, though. Like, I don't think it's, like, too outside our, like, it is very much the idea that, like, your your daily life is dictated by stuff you'll never fully understand. I, well, that, I mean, I'm just looking for somewhere out there in the, the Gmail, uh, you know, uh, program or the, the, you know, the Google program somewhere out there. Somebody's got a, is compiling a program called nihilarthotep.c. <laughs> runs on all systems yeah runs it's on uh, all systems there you yeah, go yeah, yeah no matter the device it'll find a way yeah it'll now um trent becomes obsessed with handyman hank his son milo uh with blue boy and one thing i think that i love it is just these kind of attention to details of descriptions when you describe that the muppet that that muppetish thing that uh, milo becomes you know attached to it is incredibly creepy i mean it just stays <laughs> with you and i like to talk about you know the import of some of those just tiny details that really like you know turn something every day into uh, something incredibly creepy yeah, I think uh, I think Little Boy Blue was that that was Andrew. Um, Hank, in most ways, was Andrew as well. I mean, I, I wrote some of the the um, orations, I suppose, that 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 were given to Hank. But I think the idea and the description. I mean, from my perspective with horror, it is it is noticing those little, those little quotidian details, those those little aspects of a room or uh you know i think someone once described it as like you come back home to your house and it looks that everything looks the same instead of everything's been moved like an inch to the left and you know yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. back of your lizard brain pings like there's something not right here but everything looks normal um you know so but 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 i mean those are absolutely things that i used to pick up on in in films or uh in books and I, I, you know, that, that you're looking for that weird twinge up the back of your neck and sort of passing that on to a reader as best you can. And, you know, it's an inexact art sometimes, you know, not everyone is going to hit, obviously you're throwing darts at somebody's sort of psyche and seeing if you can, you can nail a couple, but, um, but yeah, I don't know if you, I'm sure Andrew, you have something to say about that as well, but it's, it's a massively important part of horror. It's, it's not the big operatic set pieces. Sometimes it's the more, it's the littler things. Yeah, I think you need the littler things to unlock the big moments. Like, you need those tactile details, right, Rick, that feel like you're there or that it's something that you know. And that's often something that, you know, provides the grounding for you to just tear the mask off in the next scene, right? Like, hey, I've convinced you these five things are, like, fairly real. Okay, good. Now here's for the unreal. And you have all the real things around sort of grounding the space. So when the unreal happens, somebody's not just like, oh, yeah, no, it's another animated thing that just shows up. And like you want it to be tactile and present in a way that kind of hits the senses. And I think that's kind of what, you know, I think that's something really strong in all of Craig's work, um, the Cutter books, the Davidson books. There's this lived in tactile quality. It's kind of what makes like the original Star Wars movies way better than the new ones is like somebody was like, imagine space, but kind of shitty. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's like it's, you know, it's like Star Wars or Star Trek in that way, where it's just like, hey, people live places, people experience things 
Like if you lived in a house long enough and you're eating food at the same spot all the time, it's going to look weird. It's going to look different than, you know, like there's, oh, that's where he sits. Like, so being attuned to, to, yeah, (laughs) being attuned to human detail, right? Um, The oil spot in someone's driveway, because they're always parking in the same, you know, all those things like add up. The fact that, you know, there's in carpeted homes after a while you start seeing the use trails of like where, oh no one ever goes in that corner that's the carpet from 50 years ago that's the beautiful stuff so stuff like that i think you know both our minds go there and it's also stuff that's often registering like in the back of people's brains all the time and so when they see it it's like kind of these little synaptic flashes it's like oh yeah weird carpet oh yeah the water kind of smells when you first run the tap, but after a minute, it's fine. Like all those things start to kind of add up. And, you know, what's cool about books versus a movie or whatever is collaborative too, right? Like you're reading these things and then you're having to imagine it and you're bringing in your experiences of, like you said, your parents' house in the middle of nowhere or one of the first ones in the development. So you're collaborating with us and we're building this scene together. And so when you're- when you're, you know, scaring the shit out of yourself, that's you are because you could just put the book down and walk away. You know, you can't do that with a movie. You got to get up, you try to pause it, but it keeps playing. No, with the book, unless it's forcing itself into your eyes, you are making a conscious choice to like go along with us on this. And I think that's what makes it work is if we're giving you the right details, you want to come back because you're like, I see these guys. I see what they're talking about. Yeah. And, and a big part of horror too is, is, you know, is laying the breadcrumb trail. Do you know what I mean? Just sort of exactly. that place of unreality and 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 sort of leading the the reader by the hand. But one thing I've noticed, and I think you you mentioned it, Rick, just just how quick the book reads, is that you know I I grew up on '80s horror and you know sort of the slobber knockers of King and and um, Barker and Kuntz even. And I just think, I mean, maybe you've noticed something, maybe Andrew too. Over over time, I, I think it has something to do with maybe the internet it's like people's attention spans are shorter they want things to happen quicker they're not necessarily willing i don't i'm not sure anyways to read 300 pages before of breadcrumbs before those breadcrumbs start developing into something in the way that i as a younger reader was like oh you know i feel like i'm in capable hands i feel like i'm in the hands of someone who is gonna give me what i'm looking for i you know but but he or she is gonna sort of develop the story at a more leisurely pace at that time, it wouldn't have been considered a leisurely pace. You know, I mean, back in the day, you know, there were there were bestsellers like Gore Vidal and uh, Leon Uris. They were writing these giant, giant books. And, and you know, more recently, some of the big books that come out that I can see why they've been, been published. But but I just don't know that readers are necessarily willing to interact with a big book. I think even on, on the simple, like uh, the size of it, the sheer size and weight is intimidating in a way that in the 70s and 80s and 60s, it was like, no, no, the bookstores sh- book are full of books like this. So I think I felt with this is like, yeah, we want to, we want to lay the breadcrumbs out, but we can't, we, we don't have that, that benefit or the luxury of time that we might've had if we were writing a horror book in the eighties, you know, by page 50, you've got to have, have things sort of moving forward and and you've got to sort of ramp things up and, and keep it kind of at that high tension, which, which, you know, maybe that's not really my style generally, but but I feel like maybe more so that I've written horror books. Um, there is a feeling of 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 that sort of thing in the background um, um, prompting me to sort of make things a little uh, a little quicker, you know, which um, again, I don't resent it. I, I just think it's it's a change that I've made that feels um, in keeping with the times. Well, you know, I, I, there were, were a lot of horror you know horror novels kind of on the, the somewhat uh usually at the time they were sold as a cheaper but like by richard layman oh yeah you read a richard layman novel you're not going to be waiting around before you know some body parts are going to be disconnected <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's often often in fragrant uh delecto uh, you know in the midst of some kind of <laughs> someone's having a dalliance and next their heads rolling off into the weeds so. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, uh, one of the things I think you guys do really well, I love, you're talking about uh, kind of practical things. And there are all these kind of weird sculptures that Milo makes, and these projects that uh, uh, 
Trent starts making that art. I mean, I would love to see an art exhibition. You could, if you made those art, had somebody make those things, you could exhibit them at the LA Museum County of Art. I mean, I guarantee you, you get a lot of people there. And so talk about coming up with those really creepy kind of construction projects. Andrew, you go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think those were, those are super essential to the book for me. Um, they also do add something that's a little bit more unsettling and not fully explained in the text all the time, which is what I wanted. Um, but they are, I think they're sort of attempts to relate or express like between the people and uh, Handyman Hank. Am I right? Like it's these attempts to sort of connect the two worlds that don't work. So it's sort of like, it's like... Um, shop class alchemy you know it's like <laughs> it's like ah shit all right well if you know it's like it's that little kid impulse of like making a tin can phone right you got the wire you got the cans blah 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 and so it was sort of extrapolating that on a larger scale like how do you communicate with a world that's like not quite there and how do you do it well you do it almost out of a sense of belief rather than truth right like you're like well if i make this thing and i pretend it works and you see kids do this all the time with like lego or playmobile or other things where it's like yeah like they don't have they have a bow and arrow but they doesn't actually shoot arrows but they'll be like and he shoot a bunch of arrows like obviously we all agree he shot a bunch of arrows and i mm -hmm. think that's part of where it comes from is it's that you know trent and milo trying to communicate even subconsciously with this thing and it trying to communicate back and they're trying to build ways to do it that don't really follow rules. And because our minds are always our own too, it's like taking advantage of the things that scare them or that they don't understand. And, you know, maybe this will help them figure things out. So I do think, yeah, shop class alchemy a bit. There's also, I'm not like a big person in that world, but I do love the idea of, I think it's like in Warhammer 40k, like for orcs, if they really believe in a machine, then it'll work. But as soon as they stop believing in it or someone questions it, it crashes and blows up. It's like there is part of it where, you know, if you think this thing, it is that it is almost, you know, bringing the placenta, uh, the uh, placebo effect, almost said the placenta effect. That's a whole other book. <laughs> um uh, we're working on that one the placenta effect it's going to be tasty um but no the placebo effect into horror right of like hey if it's not hurting anyone it's fine if it's making them feel better it's fine but what if it was hurting them and i think that's kind of where these little machines come from in these sculptures and you are right. I think, yes. Yeah, I'm going to phone up Simon and Schuster right now and be like, we should have a contest where people make. <laughs> yeah, these machines. Their worst possible little boy blue machine. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, they were there. And I think it is. It's like this expression of like a desire to connect. Yeah. And I think it's important, really too, because none of them work, really. None yeah, of them exactly. <laughs> like showcase any actual functionality. None of them work in any generally don't work in any sort of like way that can be understood and and thus sort of just add and deepen the frustration that both of them feel and the isolation that both of them feel and the embitterment and emasculation that both of them feel that they are building yep. these things as men and they are of course not working and the especially with Trent the sort of belittlement that he feels only deepens with every single sort of failure that he has out at that house and of course the house is actively trying to encourage those failures um, yeah. and deep its frustration cycle. You know, um, also too, uh, you guys take Trent a couple times to a store that I've had to go to here in Soquel. Um, I, I won't honor it with its real name. I'll call it Home Despot, which is <laughs> what I call it. And every time I go there, that place really just, it gives me the creeps. And you you do a great job of taking that feeling and that feeling of being small because I'm not I'm I'm anti handy. I tried once to fix a pipe and it was a pipe, right? How what can you do to a pipe? You just unscrew it. When I unscrewed it, 
the entire thing was revealed to be essentially aluminum foil. It came apart. Water spilled all over the place. And I have, I mean, anything happens, I call a plumber these days. Yeah. 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 But yeah, why screwed. risk it? Why risk your biscuit? Yeah, yeah. no. It's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So talk about uh, you know that Home Depot feeling and the way you do you do a great job of uh, playing with that and uh, Trent's uh, character arc or character. <laughs> it's not really an arc. It's just like a swirl down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I think you you say it right, Rick. Is 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 most men, and probably a lot of women, but maybe it is more of a more of a male sort of fixation. You know, you're either one of them these guys who know and feel comfortable in the aisles of, of home despot, or you don't. You know, and it's it, and if and if you don't, you know, you call one of those men who are comfortable in home home despot, and they they come and do you know help you. But sometimes, like I literally the other day. We needed a bathroom fan replaced and I bought a new one and the guy came and he's like, well, this is the wrong fan. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, can you still put it in? No. What don't you know? I'm like, no, I, I don't even know what's under that fan hood. Is that this is all, you know, just like you feel immediately like, you know, and he's like, You're ah. like, but I do have this book, man. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, listen, dude, it's 200 bucks for me to be here anyway. So this is your dime. I'm like, so now I just got a big hole in my bathroom <laughs> ceiling, no fan. I feel about 10 inches tall and the guy's tootling away with $200 of my cash. So, you know, such is life. Uh, you know, these are the sort of the things that uh, I think for me, background, that kind of a thing. And I will go there and I will look for stuff and I will, I have sort of random home projects that I can do, you know, not necessarily very well. They're not aesthetically pleasing. They often work, you know, essentially. Um, but we also have like, um, my dryer door is held shut with a two by four that we lean against it to keep it closed <laughs> instead of just going and buying a proper latch. And my wife calls them, you know, Greg cures, uh, Nick <laughs> cures, uh, which are not real good cures. Um, so yeah, I thought we were, I was playing with that. I'm sure. And Andrew, I've said this before, Andrew, doesn't he look Rick like someone who would be handy around the home? It's all a facade. He is not. It's here. true. Don't get him started with no... squirrels either. Would you like to talk about the squirrels, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I definitely, yeah, here you go. So I have a, I have a PowerPoint. It's like 50 slides, but I'll go real fast, Rick. It'll be quick. Uh, no, um, yeah, no, I had, I moved into a house that's actually knock on wood, but it's been good. I am, whoever was here before didn't totally fuck it up. It's good. But um, I did get squirrels like immediately because I'm in an area with a lot of trees and they're in my soffit. They're treating it like a racetrack. They're running around <laughs> and I had to hire guys to come get them out. And even when they were getting them out, the mom was like eating through aluminum. It was like visceral shit, man. It was wild. Um, and then later I had bats uh, oh my God. who came down my old chimney. And I was playing video games at 2 a.m. And then I had a bat flying around me. And the video game I was playing was Bloodborne. So it has vampires ah. and like werewolves in it. And I'm playing. And then this bat is flying around me. And I'm like, is this 3D? Like, what's going on? Am I and super so, high? Yeah. My, yeah. Did, did I take a lot? Of, did I take too many drugs before? No. And then I go upstairs, right? Um, this is, this is, you're going to like this, Rick. So I'm like, okay, I gotta get rid of this bat. So I go upstairs, I put on a parka and I put on oven mitts because you can't touch them, right? Like if you if they have rabies, you're screwed. And I go upstairs, it's 2 a.m. And my wife's in the bathroom and I open the bathroom door and I'm wearing a parka and oven mitts and I'm grab a towel. And I was like, we have got a bat in the basement. And she was like, oh, I married a writer. Like he finally went insane. Okay. <laughs> What do I do now? Like, she was just like, all right, so he's cracked. I go to the basement. I knock the bat down with a towel. It, like, lands in a hat on the floor. I take it outside. I throw it in the air. And it just flies away, like, like <laughs> nothing. So those things also influence the book. There, when, you're, when you're up at 2 a.m. and, you know, trying to avoid thinking about work the next day, and a bat's like, hey, do you want a new problem? 
<laughs> do you do you ha not have enough going on in your life right now? Um, the idea that your home, you know, is never like you can't fully you can't airtight seal it because you you know suffocate you like there have to be there's always going to be some way for something whether it's a bug or an animal or a YouTube video to get inside your house and it's not like a place that's always protected it is a place that like is permeable stuff can get in and you have to determine like what level you're used to and my wife almost with the squirrels was like they're not hurting anyone i was like they're hurting me they're, you know, they're... but the bats she was like oh yeah no fuck those bats i don't and yeah. i like bats in the yeah. environment i'm like when yeah you're great yeah when they're outside i'm like you eat yeah. those mosquitoes i love you yeah <laughs> But not in my house. Not in my house. I mean, it's really relatable too. I mean, it's not oh, only yeah. obviously humorous, but like we all have contractor nightmares or or hand, you know, or or bats in the house, or you know, a, a pipe that is discovered it's to be made of oil and yeah, foil. just yeah. yeah, pours water all over you. So in all the time, you know, sort of preamble that we've been doing for this book, I mean, pretty much everybody we talk to has a similar story of some kind of household disaster and makes you think oh, I should just rent uh don't don't be accountable for all this stuff myself yeah now one of the things i thought was so interesting about this book was as i was re reading it and, and it's just fun i'm cackling aloud at some of these parts and, and i'm thinking oh my god you know this is virtuoso literary writing applied to kind of like the uh, three stooges in horror <laughs> i i mean it, it, it's so skilled and, and so well done that it just is really fun to read but you think wow that's like that is a finely tuned machine so i'd like you to talk about like just taking like the highest literary skills and applying them to maybe what's normally seen as a lower landscape but rendering that landscape and just like such incredible detail and with such fun and joy and mayhem that it's really pretty spectacular oh, and I'm that's really that there's yeah. a scene in in the middle of this book that um, I with I think some nods to John Carpenter and a few other um movies but and also many books but nonetheless it's super original and it's so 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 over the top and so much fun i was like laughing but then i thought no my dogs re would recognize that's not laughing i'm barking <laughs> uh andrew do you want to you want to jump on that one yeah i'll, I'll start on that i think like I think that's what it comes down to when you're talking about this, Rick, of like, oh, wow, the sentences on top of it. Like, I do think Craig and I are both. We really do like each sentence does get weighed. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's going to be, you know, ridiculously pretentious or anything, but it does mean like, why is this here? Is this like adding to this page, to this book, to this like. I think in the end, we're both pretty tough editors on our own stuff and we'll write a bunch of things and then decide, oh, it's not very good. So let's pull those out. So if you're only keeping the sentences that you really care about um, and that do something too, that aren't just there, like I think on the scene you're describing, um, that could have been twice as long, but it probably wouldn't have had the impact. Um I think, you know, being specific with your images and sometimes it's just the specificity of, you know, when to really apply detail and then when to pull back. Um, I think that was something we both played with. And I think it is also there's a bit of that film. Uh, when you say Carpenter, I think he's a great example of like John Carpenter is like an auteur, like he's a guy who makes John Carpenter films, you know, <laughs> like. But he was never considered like, oh, he's this like great um, filmmaker by a lot of people because he was making genre films. But those movies over time have held up so well. They've become these touchstones of, oh, this is a guy who knew exactly what he wanted. 
and knew what he wanted to convey and was in control of the stories he was telling. And he was telling often stories that are super um, deep rooted in our psyche. The, the, you know, the paranoia and mistrust of the suburbs in Halloween, like the, the, the facade of, you know, suburban life and Halloween immediately getting undercut and kind of gutted Um, the like, you know, cosmic sort of unreality of Antarctica and knowing each other. And if you can ever really know anyone in the thing, um, all those kind of things, like he's doing that, but also there's an amazing monster with like a great special effects and tentacles. And like, like he was the best or he is the best. Cause he's still kicking, making great music too. go see him live. But he's, you know, the story still has to bring the reader along. It still has to be something that is exciting and, carries them forward and so I think when you bring that name up I mean that is kind of what I want to shoot for in horror fiction is the effect of you know a classic carpenter where every decision is made for a purpose um but we also are all here to have a good time and to like 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 we're here like you paid for this and we want to like bring it to you but we're yeah, gonna yeah, also yeah but we're also like you're going to be thinking about it 20 years from now kind of thing. Like, I mean, how many times have I seen that fight scene and they live in the alley between Roddy Piper and like, yeah, like, that's there for a reason, man. Like there's a reason like that goes on for so long, but it goes on for so long for a reason. Um, So I think that's the kind of attitude that we bring to horror when we write together is it's very much like we want to have fun and we want to like make it exciting, but we also want to make sure everything we're doing has a purpose and is part of the process rather than tacked on or showing off. And when know, you, that... when you exactly, well also too, when you do that, you end up with an enduring work of art that has meaning into the future. You were mentioning they live. Uh, my wife and I were just talking about, now down in where we used to, where I used to work down by Playa del Rey, there's a whole street where people who once were middle class people um, are now living in RVs and it's completely parked up bumper to bumper. Yeah. And we were just both talking, well, that's like the scene in They Live where it's the park and where there's a scene that's in the park and there's all yeah. these middle class people living there. And, and yeah. you just go, wow, well... I mean, for a fun, goofy movie that has a, an incredible fight scene and involves special sunglasses, that's... A... <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that's exactly. Powerful. Yeah, I, I would, you know, exactly. I think, you know, in terms of the fun, the fun one too, it's, you know, I, I think all of his movies are fun, but I think the one that was sort of, other than They Live, meant to be fun was was Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, what Wait. a great movie. So great. like... You want every time you watch that movie, I'm just gonna watch the good parts. You end up watching the whole movie. <laughs> Supremely quotable, you know, great yeah. performances. Um, you know, playing with you know Asian, you know, cinema and and some of the tropes of that, but doing it in a very obviously American way, and um and just dead funny. You know, yeah. just like dead funny movie, and uh, and he has that. It's great to see that you know that people obviously lots of people do they have that sort of range but but playing for for us in the book too it was i think it's probably the funniest book i've ever written or the at least attempting to be the funniest book i've ever written because when you take you know a lot of a lot of typical male um bugaboos or 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 things that um you know bother us essentially when you reduce them down you boil them down to their element they're actually kind of hysterical and sort sort of you know I wouldn't say pathetic. They're not exactly that. They're they're just deeply rooted in in sort of cultural concerns and the way that that you know men are you know changing or not changing. Uh, and I think you know I think there's a set satirical sort of underpinning a lot with with Handyman, which I think that was a lot of fun to write. Other than you know again, I was mo most uh, the showpiece things were not all mine, but a lot of them were mine. And those were often a lot of fun to write too. And yeah, so there'd be times when I'd just be cackling, cackling like a buffoon. My wife would be like, what are you doing up there? What, what, what is going on up there? Oh, don't worry. I'm, I'm working. Yeah. They were working. It yeah. is work, but doing work. One of the things too, that I loved about this book that I thought also spoke to 
the incredible literary skill was were the the plot twists where I mean I just didn't see them coming and they were just gobsmacking and really enjoyable but also too I thought wow they really did lay the seeds for that <laughs> and, but so and I thought well that is you know that is a kind of skill that is really hard to achieve and so congratulations on that and just I mean as I say you encountered that kind of thing in a literary novel you just go wow and there are literary novels that do that but not not literary novels that involve self-surgery and (laughs) (laughs) and covering the the spectrum from flinch-worthy to cringe-worthy to out-and-out terrors (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're right. I think that was probably partially because the book gestated over such a long period. I mean, we we were initially conceiving of, I think, pre-pandemic, you know, so and we sort of worked on in fits and starts over the pandemic until we really settled on sort of the the momentum of, of the novel and, you know, turning it into a novel. And that was a really much more concentrated period. But we had lots of time to sort of think about, OK, well, you know, where can we go with these characters? How can we, yeah, pull, the, you know, sort of what would it be like pull those reversals essentially you know what I mean show the house to be maybe something more than what it seems like initially um and you know what are the you know that's a classic staple generally of the haunted house book too is that there's something lurking there's something in the attic there's something in the basement uh and you just got to find the right time to show it and hopefully show something that's a little different than um that's slightly new at least and and hasn't been seen in that the the genre before but then again there is nothing new under the sun essentially so yeah I don't know Andrew do you you know it's it's fun to talk about how this book came together like sort of uh, with those twists you know yeah yeah I think like what you're saying Rick and like what um Craig's talking about here too is that it was something where we did layer a lot of things in because we had this time to kind of do it. Like we were just sort of shooting ideas back and forth. And we did, you know, we would take something out and say, ah, it's not working anymore. And then we later on are like, actually, we need that. And not being afraid to do that, like being trusting our gut and kind of our discussions meant that, you know, if we're working something back in, we have to make sure it's worked into the book as a whole. This is not like a plug and play scene generator where you're like, oh, okay, I'll just add a YouTube video here. Okay, good. I'm done for the day. I'm going to go outside now and have a beer. Like, no, like, what is, how does it relate to the other videos? What's the progression here? Like, where is the, like, even the structure of it a bit is like, there are times where like, it's not just a pure descent, right? There are times where Trent does feel like he's on top of the world. And there are times where he feels low and Handyman Hank pulls him back up again. And we did sort of layer those in that this was sort of us luring the reader in as well, right? And so when those later plot twists start happening, we did plant seeds, uh, sometimes in the first chapter. Um and what people are just, you know, seeing is what's grown, um, whether in the background or over time. Um, and so that was very conscious decision for us. I think um, it was also came from having this collaborative writing thing where it was like, all right, well, if Craig's going to do that, then we got to make sure, you know, <laughs> that it just doesn't feel like a random thing. Like it needs to have not causation because like causation and horror just turns into like everything is my mom's fault or something like we needed it to have you know part of the world um I don't love world building like that gets brought up a lot with like fantasy and sci-fi and things like oh well you have to explain your whole world I don't think I think that's sort of antithetical to horror a bit but you do have to have more knowledge than what you're putting down on the page so now like, yeah. we have to know even if you don't know you know that's <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. some part of it is like you know we we work so long on this and you know when you're done it at least in rough you can see the shape of it and you you know the path that the, those characters have traveled and you can just go and retroactively plant seeds you know that weren't there before but you're you're planting it to a tree you know is already flowered 
by the last page. So yeah. it's, I'm sure a lot of novelists obviously do that. They're like, you know, I, I haven't really laid out the trail of breadcrumbs well enough. So let me just go pop something in here, something in here, something in there. And that, you know, on the whatever 15th edit, it's a more seamless sort of, you know, growth towards that final sort of like w- what would hopefully be a shocking kind of twist. Right. So, yeah. Now, um, you guys had a lot of fun writing this. It's clear. Uh, we readers, it's just a hoot. I love the hell out of it. it it's <laughs> it's both way over the top, scary and weird, and and gives you your money's worth. Um, in terms of the the monster content. Um, so will you be doing this again? That's the, I want to say it's the, what is it? The million dollar question. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of it probably depends on, on, you know, if someone, I mean, listen, Andrew, I mean, if someone offers it to us, would we do it again? I think we, we would. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's definitely one. Um, Yeah. I have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, yay. <laughs> We're already starting to work on it right and now. It is, wow. It's not something I think I could do on my own, or it is something that I think Craig would be better at than me in a way. Um, I think that's important too, is it's like, because I know like we both write our own books. I think it's about like, what is the project? Um, you know, does it speak to both of us? Is it something that could be informed by both of us? Or is it just you know, there's no point in doing it if you're not both excited about it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's like, like, you can't, you can't, you know, drag the writer to water. Uh, you can't make him drink unless he wants to. Um, and, you know, the story needs to be one that both people are excited to tell. And also that requires them both. And I think, you know, uh, it would have to be that kind of scenario, but yeah, no, there is stuff I've thought about. And, you know, I have maybe five books I want to write right now. And yeah, like one of them could be um, a book with a cutter. I don't think I would be tackling it by myself because it might be too. Uh, I uh, I need somebody who 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 sees <laughs> sees all um, <laughs> in a way that I don't. Uh, and who I sorry I, I think you can tell rick that like you andrew and i get along and that's yeah. really you know, think that we, we, get along, we get along on the other side of of this journey that we've taken together and that's yeah. like for me i've not collaborated with too many people and um but in one specific instance which which andrew knows about um it sort of put a crimp in the line of our friendship which that was not the intent obviously uh you know we both liked each other in the same way that i like andrew and uh we wanted to collaborate together out of that same fostering feeling of 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 working on something together but but someplace along the line of certain collaborative engagements you know friction can can crop up and then that friction can be really get in the way of just the inter just the friendship essentially and um you know uh, you know at, at my age and my decrepit old age not at all actually of 48 it's like you know i don't i don't want to lose friendships uh i've written enough books i i enjoy the the career i like all that but um i don't think any of it's worth in the end um you know sort of losing a friend which i know sounds a little part of sort of goofy maybe but uh but i but it was really important for me and i think andrew to navigate our way through this in a way that we like yes we're creatively entangled and interwed and doing stuff that we both feel is is you know, really engaging and stimulating to us, but that we continue to like be respectful and 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 come out on the other side of this as as friends as well. So, and I'm not saying a, a secondary engagement. We're like, ah, no, we just we we went we kicked we took another kick at the can and things all went sideways. I don't think that would happen at all. But I guess one of my my most happiest things about this is you know a that it's done, b that we're both happy with it. Um, c that it engenders some reactions such as your 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 own, which like that means the world to us and you know lastly that we're still we're still buddies and we'll go for a beer or whatever now um i have to admit i was about 60 pages into this and i thought blumhouse (laughs) (laughs) so is this well there have been discussions so not with blumhouse though okay well good (laughs) Uh, whoever you discuss it with i would go see this movie oh that's great 
listen, we'd love to, we'd love to see it happen. As you know, I, I know Rick, you live out, you live out in, in Los Angeles area, right? So I you know used how to. I, oh, you don't anymore. Okay, I'm okay. up in Santa Cruz now. Yay. Oh, okay. Um, um, so good. Well, good then. You've you've es- escaped the the snake pit in it to a certain degree. At least that's what what I've always heard. Um, so, but but in any case, you know, the, you would know enough to know that that things happen, things don't, and there's at some level there's very little we could do about it. But um, and we we didn't write it obviously for that purpose, but 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 it is you know sort of there is a cinematic feel to it, I think, and uh, yeah. So so who knows? We would we would we would love to see it. Um made into a film as well yeah i've been talking with andrew f sullivan and craig davidson also known as nick cutter about their new novel the handyman method thank you so much boys what been fun (laughs) rick is a blast thank you so much yeah thank you rick this was great uh really appreciate it man that was uh really uh Really heartening to talk to somebody who gets the book so much uh, right before it's out. Really, really uh, appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.